Do you believe that things come in threes? I mean, I do. Look, I know there's no scientific basis for that. I understand that it's probably just random chance. But I'm telling you, I'm going to tell you what happened to me just over the last two days. And it's enough to give you like heebie-jeebies, all right? Because it's kind of freaking me out a little bit. And so I definitely can't deny this anymore. And that's why I'm doing this podcast episode. No, it's nothing superstitious. And it has nothing to do with a set of three. (laughs) The topic is totally unrelated to that because we're talking about how you manage a patient in labor. But listen to this. And this This is wild, and this led up to why I moved up this topic, which I originally had on the schedule for early or mid-December, which is next month, but I'm doing it right now. All right, first I receive an email from a student who's in the Science and Technology Journalism program at our university. So this student said, look, Dr. Chop, I'm doing a paper on women's ability to eat during labor. Is it yes or no? And, you know, would you be interested in doing that interview? All right, fine. So I read that. It's fine. No joke. That day, I'm in labor and delivery, and a nurse comes up to me and says, hey, this patient is being induced, um, and she asked if she could have some broth or at least some popsicles, but I told her no, that she can't eat because she's being induced. Well, wait a minute. Is that true? So we had that discussion. Okay, fine. Well, no joke. Listen to this. Last night, just last night, I'm getting ready to go to bed, and I receive a Facebook ping, right? The little alert. I should turn that thing off. But nonetheless, and it's a friend that I hadn't heard from in about a year. I said, hey, Hector, look, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm actually about to get induced. Um, and I'm really upset because I told my family that, you know, they could bring me some light snacks. I had prepared these little sandwiches and I was going to eat, but I was not given permission to eat, even though I'm like one centimeter. So am I wrong? And so we had that discussion. How weird is that? So three different things, these three different episodes, all right? The email about eating in labor, and then my own patient on the ward, uh, and then this friend who I hadn't even heard from in a year, all in two days. That's my triad. Weird or what? Now, on an unrelated but similar note, do you ever been thinking about like a commercial or something and you're watching, you know, a television show or something, and then that commercial comes on? Freaky. So anyway, same kind of concept, but that got me thinking, look, obviously something is going on here. I can read the tea leaves. All right. I don't want to see any more messages. I get it. I get it. Do this episode topic. So I get it. I'm going to do can you eat or not during labor? So MPO during labor? Yes or no? The answer is no, you do not have to be MPO during labor, at least not during latent labor. So let's cover all the data and where that even came from in this kind of detailed history and current update and current recommendations for food items during labor. Ready? We've got lots to cover. Let's do it now. Our goal is to keep everyone up to date in practicing evidence-based medicine because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Well, this whole story of being NPO, nothing per oral, right? Nil per os, nothing to eat in labor, can be traced back to one individual who was an OBGYN back in the 1940s. We're going to tell that story here in a minute. But isn't that remarkable? I mean, look at how much influence one person can have, both positively and negatively. I mean, we've got a lot of important single names, right? Single individuals in medicine's history. I mean, these people helped revolutionize both the art and the practice of 
medical sciences. Take a look at Coe for germ theory, Lister, of course, Halstead, and in obstetrics, of course, we have Friedman from where we get the Friedman labor curve. And it's not all men. I mean, don't forget about Virginia Apgar, where we get the Apgar score, or Priscilla White with the White classification of diabetes. I mean, single individuals that helped revolutionize the way we take care of women uh, and people in general. Now, while some concepts are immortal, I mean, we still do Lister's germ theory, for example, some of those other concepts are prone to evolution due to new emerging evidence. That's why we don't do the Friedman curve anymore, right? Which is a good thing because it was so rigid that a lot of women underwent C-section when they probably didn't have to. So things evolve. And that's a good thing, right? I mean, that's the whole tagline of this podcast is that medicine moves fast. And so as we have new information, new data, we have to evolve some of those concepts. Well, that's exactly the story of this NPO issue in labor. While that may have served a protective role when it was first investigated, now decades ago, new data has confirmed that in the average risk patient who's undergoing labor induction or spontaneous labor, there is no longer a valid concept that avoidance of labor is somehow safer for the patient. So in this episode, again, we're going to review this concept of eating in labor. Is it safe? And what does the current data say? So if you're ready, go grab your sandwich as we talk about nothing per oral as we talk about labor and eating status. Here we go. Well, let's start this review with a quick spoiler. So there's your spoiler alert and it's coming. Yes, it's okay to eat during labor as long as you're otherwise considered at average risk for some kind of complication, okay? Especially during early labor or late labor. Now, don't forget with a caveat that during active labor, appetite seems to be suppressed anyway because of the increased frequency of contractions. But in general, if you want to eat, there's really no big restriction, delivering a baby takes lots of energy. The uterus actually needs a constant amount of calories as a substrate and energy in order to continue contracting well. This is similar to a person running a marathon. You'd never put somebody at a starting line of a race and say, look, I know you haven't eaten in six to 10 hours, but I've given you some water. Now go ahead and go at it and hope you win. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. On average, labor for a person's first child can last anywhere from 12 up to 24 hours, combining both the latent and the active phases of labor. Of course, for later births, it's a lot shorter, but it's still anywhere from 8 hours to 10 hours. Staying hydrated and having adequate energy sources is vital during this time. It's, of course, the patient's own decision whether they want to eat or not, but you shouldn't restrict it against their will because the data is just not there. Now, remember, of course, I'm not talking about scheduled surgeries. I'm talking about either induction of labor or spontaneous labor. This whole issue of not eating before a scheduled C-section is a little different because that falls under the ERAS protocol, all right? That's the enhanced recovery uh, after surgery, ERAS. Remember, that's a different thing. So just to be clear, I'm talking about eating during either induced or spontaneous labor. If you're having a scheduled C-section or the patient's having a scheduled C-section, then you default to the ERS pathway. But even that has gotten much more loosey-goosey because the old rule of don't eat for six to eight hours before your surgery is completely outdated. All right, now I know that our focus is on PO status or per oral status in either induced or spontaneous labor. I get that. 
But because we did mention Schedule C sections and the enhanced recovery after surgery, the ERAS pathway, let's just summarize that real quick and knock that out of the way as it relates to scheduled C sections, okay? Scheduled surgeries. So I'm going to get into spontaneous labor in a minute, but let's just knock this out so that we cover it and put that off to the side. For the patients scheduled for C-section, that's even changed. As we've already talked about, it used to be nothing by mouth for six to eight hours before surgery. But of course, that's outdated. The new ERAS adopted C-section guidelines state, quote, women can be encouraged to drink either clear fluids like pulp-free juice, coffee, or tea without milk until up to two hours before surgery. And at this two-hour mark, in non-diabetic pregnant patients, it can also be offered for them to have a carbohydrate fluid load if desired. However, carbohydrate loading is not considered acceptable in the pregnant diabetic patient population. This ERAS protocol also has a part two dealing with food intake. In its second recommendation, it states, quote, patients may eat a light meal up to six hours before surgery. All right. So again, you can eat up to six hours before surgery, but this whole thing of don't eat or drink anything from that point on is outdated because from that six hour mark up until two hours before surgery, they can have any kind of clear fluid drink that they like. This ERAS document can be found in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the Gray Journal, from December of 2018. And the complete title of that guideline is, quote, Guidelines for Antenatal and Pre-Op Care and Cesarean Delivery, the Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Society Recommendations, Part 1, end quote. As we mentioned just after the intro, this whole origin of the MPO status in labor goes back to the 1940s. 1940s? That should tell you it's about time to change this thing. Now, we're going to get into this, but just to be clear, this isn't about aspiration in labor itself, okay? Yes, GI motility stalls during labor. It's a progesterone effect, and it's a stress hormone issue. That That's all correct. But that wasn't the focus or the target of the aspiration condition. This all related to the type of anesthesia that was being used at that time, which, of course, was general anesthesia. In the 1940s, when aspiration was recognized as a major problem during childbirth, anesthesiologists were using very primitive tools to keep a person's airway open when under general anesthesia. And some physicians didn't use any airway tools at all. You got to remember that the whole idea of a laryngoscope that we take for granted because it's so readily available now in every OR... That was a relatively new concept in the late 1940s. Is that wild or what? I mean, they were just very primitive. So aspiration was a real risk, especially with inhalation anesthesia. So this is a whole different world. It's a whole different time. Back then, the ability to even view the patient's vocal cords was was very limited, and it was considered very novel and very um, on the edge, very on the fringe of new technology to put something down the throat. So when people had general anesthesia, there was no real way to protect the airway, so aspiration was kind of a real risk. But just as these advances were underway, in 1946, a physician in OBGYN started a study. This was Dr. Curtis Mendelson, and Mendelson was an OBGYN in New York, and he wanted to see how bad aspirations were affecting women during labor. Now, this is all under general anesthesia, all right? So he published his paper called The Aspiration of Stomach Contents into the Lungs During Obstetrics Anesthesia. 
This was actually published in the same gray journal that we have today, the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, again, the year 1946. Now, let's be very clear. Mendelssohn was not trying to punish women by keeping them NPA, all right? He was doing just the opposite. He was trying to protect them and save them from aspiration. But aspirations were still rare even back then. But when they did happen, they were devastating. So Mendelssohn did his investigation into the prevalence of general anesthesia-related or associated aspirations. Remember, all in pregnant women. General anesthesia complications by aspiration occurred in 66 women from 44,016 women in labor. That was an overall incidence of a whopping 0.15%. That was between 1932 and 1945. So good for him for being diligent and spanning a large time frame of data for an incidence of 0.15%. Now, there were two deaths here, so this is a big thing, but let's put this again in absolute numbers. The two deaths were from airway obstruction by solid, undigested food in two of five women who aspirated solid material. And those who aspirated liquid, a syndrome of dyspnea and cyanosis and tachycardia was observed, but this had spontaneous resolution in about 24, maximum 36 hours. So universal recovery happened with aspiration of just fluid contents, whereas aspiration of solid food material caused two deaths in the five that occurred with solid food being consumed during the labor process. All right, now this dude Mendelssohn was kind of a special guy, all right? Now, very creative and very scientifically curious, but some of his studies that he did were kind of weird and a little whack. So listen to this. So Mendelssohn went on to to demonstrate, because he had to prove his point, that the acid that actually came up of a woman's vomitus, okay? So women puked, he went through the puke, drew up some fluid to get some of that stomach acid, and he was hell-bent to prove that that was dangerous to the lungs. Now, this would never pass through IRB today, all right? But it's a creative study, and it's kind of disgusting, and he proved his point. He instilled vomitus, yep, that's puke, of pregnant women and put them into the respiratory tract of rabbits to see what would happen. Well, of course, there was a chemical pneumonitis and they didn't do well. So he proved that aspiration of gastric contents into the lungs was actually a pretty devastating condition. Again, a brilliant study. It's just gross. And those poor little rabbits. So he coined the term respiratory failure secondary to aspiration pneumonitis during anesthesia. And that's the reason why it's still called Mendelssohn's syndrome today. And that's at the groundwork to prevent women from eating during labor. Because in case they need a general anesthesia with inhalational anesthetics and no good way to protect the airway. Do you follow how all those things are now outdated? But because of those things, the historical context was set to not allow women to eat or drink during labor. And yep, it wasn't until recently that that's now been challenged and thankfully has changed. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This started to get challenged in the late 1990s. In 1997, researchers conducted the first U.S. study that was pretty large to look at pregnancy-related deaths due to anesthesia between the years 1979 to 1990. General anesthesia was used in 41% of the sample in the earlier years and 16% of the sample in the later years. Well, what did they find? Well, they found that the risk of death because of aspiration during C-section was one death for every 1.4 million, that's million, births. So extremely rare and extremely unlikely. That was published in the journal Anesthesiology in 1997, and the lead author was Hawkins. After that 1997 report, the next biggest journal article was in 2007 by Myrie. This was out of Michigan, and it was a study that was conducted from 1985 to 2003. This reported eight anesthesia-related deaths among pregnant individuals, Five of the eight deaths involved general anesthesia, and none of the participants in the study died from aspiration. Now this takes us to 2013 with a Cochrane review. In this Cochrane review, researchers combined evidence from five trials involving a total of over 3,000 participants who were randomly assigned to either eat or drink or not eat or drink during labor. This was published by Singata et al. in 2013. Now, everyone was in active labor and at average risk of needing a cesarean. A few of the trials reached opposing conclusions on outcomes like cesareans and vomiting and labor duration. Unfortunately, none of the researchers looked at satisfaction with childbirth between those who ate and who did not eat because more recent data has shown that if they're allowed to eat during labor, obviously patient satisfaction goes up. Well, after this Cochrane review, the researchers concluded that there was no proven harm or benefit in restricting low-risk individuals from consuming food or drink during labor. All right, now don't lose our timeline. That was 2013. Now we arrive in 2015 with the American Society of Anesthesiologists news brief that came out out of their annual clinical meeting. The American Society of Anesthesiologists weighed in on this issue, concluding that most healthy women can skip the fasting and, in fact, they could benefit from eating a light meal during labor. This data was published at their annual clinical meeting and researchers noted that aspiration was almost non-existent in clinical practice due to advanced anesthesia care, including the increased use of epidurals and spinal blocks in place of providing inhalational anesthesia as well as new intubation techniques. So these authors concluded, quote, healthy women who are not at risk for aspiration should ask their medical care providers, including their physicians and anesthesiologists and nurse providers, if eating a light meal during labor is safe for them. A light meal could include fruit, light soups, toast, light sandwiches with no large slices of meat. It can also include juice and water. 
The society also went on to say that most women can lose their appetite during very active phases of labor, but it should still be offered to patients that they could eat if they desire, but should not be forced to restrict food in either the latent or the active phase. End quote. This has also been replicated, and that same stance has been duplicated internationally. A year after the American Society of Anesthesiologists had that press release, another organization out of the UK released similar findings. Knight et al. published in the International Journal of Obstetric Anesthesia in 2016 that the confirmed cases of aspiration were very, very rare and occurred about nine in every 1.5 million pregnancies, given an overall estimate rate of only six aspiration events per million. Pregnancies. So they concluded that yes, aspiration can occur with general anesthesia, but it is highly unlikely and again is quite rare. Current organizations, including the American College of Nurse Midwives and the World Health Organization, have formally recommended that healthy mothers not be restricted to have food or drink during labor if they desire PO intake. Well, as we get to the end of the podcast, here's where we're at. Patients need caloric and energy support in labor, and simply giving women IV fluids or lactator ringer by IV is not enough. Interestingly, in 2018, a meta analysis confirmed that giving dextrose containing fluids can actually shorten the first stage of labor. Isn't that amazing when the uterus actually has some energy substrate to burn and use as it's contracting? Once again, you would never tell a marathon runner, hey, go get on that starting line and run as fast as you can, but I'm just going to give you water. No, you need calories, you need energy, you need some sugar. And so, once again, the restriction of both fluids or light meals during labor is definitely okay, assuming the patient desires it and is not considered at extreme high risk for a catastrophic event like a uterine rupture or urgent C-section under general anesthesia. Those are rare issues. In the vast majority of cases, oral intake during labor, as long as you do the right oral intake, is totally okay. Ah, but that's the question. What's actually recommended? All right, well, let's cover that next as we bring up the tail end of the podcast. All right, let's bring this thing home. In labor, what's recommended is low residue foods that have high nutrition and hopefully are high protein. So, things that can be considered pre labor induction or especially during the early parts of labor are things like scrambled eggs, almond or natural peanut butter on toast or on bananas, some fruit smoothies that don't have large pieces of fruit, even yogurt cups with granola is okay. Others have recommended things like graham crackers or whole grain rice snacks or oatmeal or porridge, and even granola or protein bars are good ideas. As labor progresses, appetite typically fades. Nonetheless, it's a good idea if the patient wants to stay orally hydrated to give them something to drink in between contractions. And that can include healthy drinks or even sugar drinks and things like energy drinks as long as they don't have a lot of caffeine. Now, here's some healthy recommendations for PO intake during the active phases of labor or as labor progresses in general. Honey sticks are a great source of natural energy and provide good calories during labor. Some fruit popsicles are also a good idea. Homemade labor aid, or basically homemade Gatorade, is also an option. 
fresh juices, coconut water, herbal teas with honey and lemon, but without milk is also recommended. And lastly, don't forget the simple soups like miso or even bone broth. Ugh, I mean, <laughs> sorry, if you like bone broth, knock yourself out. I just got word that I shouldn't make faces on things, but nonetheless. All right, what to avoid? Well, in general, patients should avoid high-fat meals and things that are large pieces of food. And also, they should avoid very acidic sauces or flavors that can increase the risk of gastroesophageal reflux. Also, please avoid gassy foods during labor. So tell your patients, if you're going to get induced, try not to eat that big bowl of broccoli. Why? Because it causes gas pains and can make labor much more uncomfortable. Labor is painful as it is. Let's not throw any extra insult to the issue. Isn't it amazing how one person can influence medicine so much? I mean, look at Emanuel Friedman. His Friedman Curve, published in 1955, was the norm, the mainstay of labor for 70 years. And now, of course, with Mendelssohn. Great research, fantastic studies, although he was kind of a weird dude. But nonetheless, that kind of led the foundation to keeping women NPO in labor. Well, things change. It's totally okay for women to have PO oral intake during labor if they desire. They just got to be able to eat the right things. Also, stop giving patients just LR or normal saline during labor. They need calories. They need energy substrate. So remember, what we choose to give patients can also increase their patient satisfaction. As always, we're thankful for you and we're thankful that you're part of our podcast family. I hope you found this helpful. We'll see you next time on another episode of Clinical Pearls.